Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right, the return of Power Hour has officially continued for a second week. Many of you understandably thought that it might not, given that there was a two-year hiatus. But we are so far on track for doing, let's say, let's say the current goal is to do at least 25 episodes this year. So we are on episode two for this year, and I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey. And then Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan. Hey, good evening. <laughs> Not in Laguna Beach. We are recording here at uh, just before noon in Laguna Beach, and Stefan is many, many hours ahead, and you are listening to this whenever you're listening to it through the miracle of audio recording and the modern internet. So this week, again, we're going to pick five topics and just dive into them. I'm going to start out. So my the topic I pick today is going to be a longer one. So if you don't like monologues, I apologize, but it's it's something that's really on my mind and i think i have some better ways of explaining it so let me let me jump in and this is the topic of framework so a framework is a starting structure when you build a building or build a vehicle or build anything else you have a starting structure that then influences everything else the framework of the house influences everything else about the house. And I believe that in a thought process or in a conversation, there is a very analogous type of framework. So the, the basic framing of it determines the rest. And the framework will often consist of different methods of thinking, different assumptions people have about the world, and different values people have, different beliefs about what is good and bad. And the more we can be clear on what our framework is and what the frameworks of people we're talking to or consuming news reports from, the better. And today I want to talk in particular about my framework for processing different kinds of claims in the realm of energy. And I, I discussed this from a certain perspective on the last episode of the Human Flourishing Project. I believe it was episode 23, so you can check that out. It was called something like How to Evaluate controversial technologies. And I've been thinking about the issue a lot in working on the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0 and just reading the news on a daily basis. And it particularly came into focus the other day when a friend of mine, Joe Polish, who runs an interesting organization called Genius Network, which I've been a member of, and he sent me a link to the Wired Guide to Climate Change. That's almost exactly what it's called, if not Exactly. And I read this thing and I thought the way this reads, I could see somebody totally thinking, yeah, this makes sense. This is a thoughtful kind of scientific document. And to me, this is worse than worthless. Like you should definitely not read this kind of thing uh, because it just, it, the, the framework of it is so bad. But today I want to talk about, I'm not going to tell you not to read things, but rather to give you the framework that I have in mind when I read things, which then helps me consume better and better things over time. So I'll give you, this is the, the current way that I explain my, my framework. 
And it's even a little different from how I explained it in the last episode of the Human Flourishing Project, but this is currently the way that I find most helpful. So I'll give you four parts and then I'll explain each of them. So the parts are explain the evidence, seek the full context, acknowledge your assumptions, and define your ultimate goal. And these are these are methods that people who claim to have knowledge and be communicating it should follow. And th- these are the service standards by which I judge their presentations. So one is explain the evidence, two is seek the full context, three is acknowledge your assumptions, and four is define your ultimate goal. So for each of these, I'm just going to quickly summarize what it means, why it's important, and how it is routinely violated. So first, explain the evidence. When somebody is presenting an argument, I want them to explain how their conclusion follows from the evidence. And a crucial aspect of this is including how plausible counterarguments don't follow from the evidence. So I want them to explain how their conclusions do follow from the evidence, but crucially, I want them to explain how plausible counterarguments don't follow from the evidence. And this is something that's been elicited actually recently on Twitter by Scott Adams, who's a really interesting guy, who's and he's been inventorying different arguments for what what is often being called climate change alarm versus climate change alarm skepticism, which is a decent kind of way of thinking about the issue. And he's having different people try to give different arguments and then have people respond. And I think that's generally a good kind of exercise that doesn't happen nearly often enough. And one reason why this is so important, because you might think, well, it's not so important to do this, because really what we just need are we need the smartest people in the society to kind of come up with a consensus, and then we need that consensus to be reported through mainstream channels such as the educational system and the media, and then they just need to explain their reasoning, and that's it. And that's certainly it in terms of what's done, but it's no good at all. And the reason is because, or one reason is because even very smart specialists are capable of confidently advocating completely false views. Even very smart specialists are capable of confidently advocating completely false views. And for a lot of elaboration on this, check out chapter one of the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which you can see free online. It's called The Secret History of Fossil Fuels. And it documents how very, very smart ecologists and other thinkers completely mispredicted, but with with huge confidence, dire environmental consequences from fossil fuel use, particularly that we would run out of fossil fuels and we would run out of other resources. And they also predicted climate devastation in a way that does not resemble at all uh, what actually happened. But certainly with the kind of resources running out, they just got that completely wrong. And yet they were confident and they confidently said things like, well, we should radically restrict fossil fuels. And yet if we had done that, billions of people who've come out of poverty using fossil fuel energy definitely would not have come out of poverty. So you have very smart specialists confidently advocating completely false views. And there are a bunch of reasons for why this is possible, but just two big ones are one, it's possible for smart, for smart specialists to advocate highly speculative conclusions within their own field but to advocate those as demonstrated. That's a very common one. And then another one is for people who are specialists who have a lot of respect in one field to voice 
conclusions from other fields with confidence that they are totally ignorant of. So you can see in the realm of resources, say, people like Paul Ehrlich and John Holdren had very speculative, to put it mildly, views about how resources work. And they did not really acknowledge, they didn't acknowledge how speculative they were, and they were totally wrong about that. And then they had very wrong views about the economics of fossil fuels, which they really knew nothing about. And when you combine those, that led to these horrifically wrong assessments. So we need smart people, we need smart specialists, but it's just absolutely crucial that they explain how their conclusions follow from the evidence, including how plausible counterarguments don't follow from the evidence. And all sides in the different energy debates need to do this more. And right now, there, there's just almost no serious engagement with counterarguments. And it, it makes it very, very hard to figure things out. So that's one big thing is explain the evidence. Number two is seek the full context. And what this means is we want people who are making assessments, whether it's of a technology or a policy or a product, we want them to seek all the benefits and all the risks of a technology or policy or product. And that includes we want precise magnitudes, how big things are, and precise probabilities. And the reason why we need this is because without un having a comprehensive and precise understanding of benefits and risks, we can't possibly make a good assessment. It's, say, if we're choosing a prescription drug, we need to know all the benefits and all the risks and with as much precision about the magnitudes and probabilities as we can, uh, because it could be that the drug has a lot of benefits and low risks, in which case we should take it if it's our best option, but it could be as very low uh, benefits and a lot of risks. So the only way to get at this is to seek uh, the full context. Now, this is routinely violated. And what I've noticed is that it's it's routinely violated in the energy discussion with people being biased and sloppy in favor of certain energy technologies and against others. And the technologies that people are biased in favor of, interestingly, will fall into the category of green or renewable or natural. So one thing to observe is that well, fossil fuels, people have a negative bias against, and people tend to only look for negatives and not look for positives. But it applies equally, if not more, for nuclear power, which is a non-carbon source of energy. So it's not just that people have a lot of negative feelings toward carbon sources of energy and a lot of hope toward non-carbon. That would make a certain amount of sense, depending on your assumptions about carbon dioxide. But no, nuclear and even hydro have a lot of animosity. Uh, against them. And this is this is a really, there's just tons and tons of examples, just easy stuff like, why is it that bird deaths from an oil spill are considered horrible, and yet the far greater bird deaths from wind turbines are generally ignored, if, if bird deaths are a priority? And then another issue is, on is that the right priority in the first place? But even on that priority, why is there this kind of bias? Or with something like worker safety, why is it that people are obsessed with, say, coal miner deaths, but they're not obsessed with the far greater risks of mining for the materials in solar panels and wind turbines? Or why are people obsessed with the safety issues of nuclear when those are documented to actually be less than any other technology? There's a certain inclination for certain technologies, namely solar power and wind power and often uh, biofuels. So different plant-based things for those, for people to have bias and sloppiness in favor of those, and then against 
fossil fuels and nuclear. And this this is very common and it's very destructive. And I talk about in the secret history of fossil fuels, how this bias and sloppiness led people to completely underestimate the likely benefits of using fossil fuels and to completely overestimate the likely risks to the point where you had thought leaders advocating radical restrictions on fossil fuels, even though those were necessary for billions of people to bring themselves out of poverty. So fortunately, we as a society generally did not listen to those people, but those were definitely very, very prestigious people who were not seeking the full context. So that's number two. Number three, which is very related, is acknowledge your assumptions. And the reason this is related to seek the full context is that one of the big reasons why people exhibit bias and sloppiness in one direction or another is that is their assumptions or expectations about how the world works or in the case of expectations, how the world will work. So we all have assumptions, beliefs about how the world works. And it's important when we're explaining things to others to acknowledge those, particularly when they're controversial. And in the case of fossil fuels, and nuclear and with this this bias in favor of quote natural technologies and against unnatural or non-green technologies there there's a definite world view that underlies these kinds of dire predictions about fossil fuels and very positive predictions about solar and wind and this is I'll sometimes call this view the fragile nurturer view of nature and then the polluting parasite view of human beings. And so it's the fragile nurturer view of nature and the polluting parasite view of human beings. And this view amounts to nature left to its own devices. So if we don't interfere with it or impact it much is stable, safe, and sufficient, stable, safe, and sufficient. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's stable. People often talk about the stable climate, absent our interruption. It's safe. You know, nature is generally friendly and it's sufficient. It gives us what we need. But then the idea is once human beings come along, we're this alien species who acts as a polluting parasite. We just sully it all up and we take way too many resources. And thus what happens is nature rebels. It's, it's fragile. It's delicate balance is broken. And therefore we get punished with a lot more threats in nature and a lot fewer resources. So this is this is a viewpoint that then underlies different kinds of predictions about fossil fuels or nuclear. For instance, people think, well, if you if you create nuclear waste, well, that's an unnatural substance. That must have a lot of negative consequences. And they're not too precise about how big those are, and they turn out not to be that big. Or with with, say, CO2, putting CO2 in the atmosphere and influencing the climate, there is this assumption that, oh, this must be bad and it must be huge. Even though if we look at the nature of the effect, there are a lot of reasons to think, well, there are actually going to be some positives of putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, such as more plant growth. And there are also clearly a lot of positives to warming. So we would at least expect people to predict some positives and some negatives. But when they predict only negatives and when they predict extreme negatives, that's often an indication that they have some assumptions about how the world works, which is that the world is this fragile nurturer and human beings are polluting parasites, and thus they expect human impacts to be negative and catastrophic for all of nature, including us. Whereas my own view is that I, I'd not summarize nature as a fragile nurturer, I'd summarize it as wild potential. So I view it as 
nature is dynamic, dangerous, and deficient. And human beings, we have the capacity to be polluters and parasites in a certain way. But fundamentally, I think more of the time, particularly in modern times, we're what I would call perfecting producers. We have the capacity to take naturally dirty parts of the environment or, or, or of nature and to make them clean. And we also have the, the capacity to produce new resources in the sense of taking once useless raw materials and making them very valuable. So for example, aluminum has existed as a chemical element, but it was completely useless until we figured out how to harness it. And oil was not a valuable resource until we figured out how to harness it. And shale oil or shale gas, which has recently become a resource, was not a resource until we figured out how to harness it. And uranium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you, if you have this polluting parasite view of human beings, and that really defines your view of the world, you're going to predict all kinds of negative consequences from human beings impacting nature versus if you recognize, and I, I think it is recognizing that human beings have this ability to be a perfecting producer, then you will also and and you will also look for very positive kinds of impacts. You'll think, oh, human beings have the capacity to change the world to make it better. And when you hear about an impact, you won't necessarily assume that it's bad, let alone catastrophic. But in practice, because people have these unacknowledged assumptions about how nature works, when they hear predictions or when they make predictions, it just seems natural that, oh, yeah, well, if we impact nature, nature's going to punish us. But this is a very religious hell narrative type of thing. Like we did the wrong thing by nature and nature is going to bite us in the ass. But that really have to acknowledge, OK, that's an assumption. And that that by itself is not a complete assumption at all about how the world works. So number three is acknowledge your assumptions. And then number four is define your ultimate goal. And what this means is define when we're evaluating a technology or a policy or a product, we want for ourselves to know and we want to know what the person evaluating the thing or assessing the thing believes is the ultimate goal. So if I'm someone is assessing Facebook or vaccines or prescription drugs or fossil fuels, Ultimately, the question is, what, what is the goal or purpose that you're trying to achieve in using the thing? And that's going to then determine how you assess it. And the way I think of it is that the, the ultimate goal then serves as a standard by which you can measure something as good or bad. So if you're measuring the positive or negative potential of Facebook, you ultimately want to know, okay, what's my ultimate goal? And for me, the ultimate goal is always some form of human flourishing human beings living up to their highest potential. And sometimes we're focused on it in, in, in we're focused on it in an individual way. And sometimes when we're dealing with the potential of different kinds of shared risks like we are when we talk about our energy systems and potential global impacts of CO2 or other emissions, then we need to talk about human flourishing in, in a more aggregate way that that accounts for all the individuals, but that that also accounts for their different kinds of impacts on others. So I, I think when I'm assessing fossil fuels, I want to think about it in terms of maximum human flourishing. And what's really important about a goal or a standard is that it's not at all necessary that people are clear about it or consistent about it. Usually in life, people aren't very consistent about what their goals are at all or consistent about pursuing them and certainly in their thinking. 
and what I find in energy and environmental issues is that particularly to the extent people have this fragile nurturer view of nature, they often treat the ultimate goal as being natural. And there's a certain logic to this, because if, if nature really is this fragile nurturer and it's stable, safe, and sufficient, then maybe our goal that we should be pursuing is just to be as natural as possible, which means to have as little impact as possible. There's a certain kind of logic to that and you hear it. But if if you view, no, the planet is really this wild potential, then the view is much more it's actually good to be on unnatural a lot in the sense of having a lot of impact. And so then the ultimate goal is human flourishing. And then we want to impact the world as much as we can positively and just to avoid negative impacts. So it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge issue though in the energy discussion because sometimes people's ultimate goal and standard is being green or minimizing human impact. And then sometimes it's maximizing human flourishing. And my view is it should always be maximizing human flourishing. And we should think of the environmental impacts as a means to that. So we should impact nature if and to the extent it's good for human flourishing and not to the extent that it's not. But if we have the goal as minimizing human impact, that's going to hurt human flourishing because it's going to view with a lot of skepticism and suspicion all the different ways we can improve the world, such as, in my view, producing fossil fuels and, and nuclear power, which I believe on net are incredibly, incredibly beneficial. So that's, that is the framework. Explain the evidence, seek the full context, acknowledge your assumptions, and define your ultimate goal. That's what I try to hold myself to, and that's what I hold other people to. And I suggest that you hold people to that. And I think that when you, when you start doing this, you'll see, oh my gosh, most of what is out there is just total trash. Even, even smart people, they're just not doing this. And then that, that can help us raise the level of discussion and ultimately demand that producers of claims hold themselves to higher standards. And then we as knowledge consumers can get better information. So that is, that is my current version of the human flourishing framework for evaluating different kinds of content. And just one, one final observation on that is the framework that is being used today in, in our knowledge system today, which our culture works, it's so bad, it, it violates the right principles so thoroughly that it can literally confuse food and poison. It can literally tell us that something that's really good for us overall is really bad for us because it has all of those deep problems. It's not explaining, it's not seeking the full context, it's not acknowledging assumptions, and it's not defining an ultimate goal. So I hope that that's helpful to you and that you also hold us to those standards. Of course, we can't always explain every detail of everything, but in general, these are practices you should see from us. And if you don't, you should hold us to account, particularly in long things like the moral case for fossil fuels or the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0, which I think will do a much better job of using this kind of framework. All right. Now let's jump into some specific stories. And you'll probably see me talking about the framework that, it, that different actors in those stories are using. So let's, let's start with Don. Don, what's the first story you want to talk about this week? 
uh, one of the things I've become really interested in is kind of the Republican soul searching in the wake of the last election, in particular around the idea of climate change. And in fact, there's a op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Ryan Costello last week called Lessons from 2008, Republicans Must Deal with Climate Change. And I mean, I don't think this particular- 2008 or 2018? 2018. I always do that, by the way, too. I don't know why, but I've always, I always confuse 2002 and 2012. And I'll often say, oh, yeah, back in 2002 when I debated Bill McKibben. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And I mean, the basic view, and I think it's much more widespread than Costello, is the sense that like Republicans view themselves as being successfully painted as science deniers versus believers in climate change and that that's politically poison. And so the search is, well, what is a kind of winning agenda for us on climate? And what Costello and other Republicans who I think are the most outspoken in this issue have latched onto is, well, we're going to say, yes, climate change is a problem and we're going to latch onto some variant of the, of the carbon tax. And their basic argument is, look, a carbon tax is a market solution. And if we pair it with tax and regulatory reforms and protect fossil fuel companies from some of these potentially devastating lawsuits, then like, let's call that a, you know, a win for our ability to get energy, our ability to have a good tax structure, and then our ability to win elections because we're no longer deniers and delayers. And I mean, my reaction to this is, that first of all, this way of thinking about the carbon tax, I mean, a carbon tax is an authoritarian restriction on energy, if there ever was one. It says- So what, just, just to jump in, so just so everyone's clear on the same page, what what is a quote unquote carbon tax or carbon dioxide tax? And, or what, what range of things can it can that refer to? Well, yeah, maybe you or Stefan want to elaborate on this, but I mean, the basic idea is that for a given level of CO2 emissions, you have to, you're going to be taxed on that. And I mean, the, the, I think the proposals vary in terms of who explicitly bears that tax. Um, I mean, it's generally going to be targeted at things like fossil fuel companies. Um, and then economists can debate w whether that tax gets passed on to consumers or, I mean, the real goal, at least the theoretical goal that they hold out is that, well, look, we're going to tax uh, CO2 energy, and therefore people are going to embrace non-CO2 energy. Right. So, so I mean, people are being, I mean, basically it's, it's saying for people who use the the mainstream or normal form of energy, you're going to have to pay a certain amount per unit of energy. And it's often, it's often put in terms of tons, which is people, when people are doing bad things, they'll often just use terminology or um, or measurements that nobody has any reference to. They'll say, like, oh, $20 a ton. And in the past, I don't have it off the top of my head, but translating this into uh, dollars per gallon can be useful. But often, often there, there's, there's a revealing range of these things because sometimes people will say the equivalent of 10 cents a gallon. And then recently you've seen some reports where people will talk about something like $1,000 a gallon. And th oh, that's the thing. And often there's this, there's this bait and switch where people say, oh yeah, it's only, it's only 10 or 20 cents a gallon. And then, but to have real teeth, it's going to have to be $10 a gallon or something like that. So there's, it, it, it's ultimately increasing the price that people pay for carbon-based energy, which is fossil fuel. So 
uh, I interrupted a little bit, but uh, go ahead with what you were thinking about that. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole idea is that we're the government is going to declare that a certain form of energy is one you shouldn't use, and therefore we're going to penalize anybody who does use it. And so this is their supposed market-based solution. And then, you know, once you add the fact that their tax and regulatory reforms are politically infeasible, like the idea that you're going that we've decided that the government should stop us from using fossil fuels, and that and that will therefore be able to roll back regulations on fossil fuel companies. I mean, that's just a non-starter for the Greens. And so what you're really going to end up with is then political support for a carbon tax, which on top of it will not do anything to meaningfully impact climate because, of course, this tax only applies in the United States, which is going to be swamped in terms of CO2 emissions by China and India. But the, I think the, the most important point, though, is that I totally agree that Republicans need a better climate agenda. And it starts with recognizing that this false alternative between being a denier or a believer in climate change comes from this sloppy framework where we're asking, like, do you believe in climate change versus the – I mean, I think the right focus is on we're for – human flourishing, including climate livability. And then you need a policy agenda that allows us to achieve that, which I think includes energy abundance. And if you think that CO2 is a genuine problem, then the number one thing you would be for is decriminalizing nuclear. But it's all from the perspective of what allows human beings to flourish and and as a crucial component, what allows us to have access to energy. Yeah. So the if the Republicans, if they are at all the party of freedom, then in consequence, they should be the party of progress. And progress means progress in human flourishing. And so there's this real potential to reframe every argument in favor of freedom and flourishing. But as long as, as, long as they let the anti-freedom side frame the argument, which in the context of economic issues, unfortunately, uh, the Democratic Party is, is very often anti-freedom, then there, you just see the spectacle of people who are in favor of freedom and and who are thus in favor of more flourishing and more progress be on the defensive and be apologetic and think, okay, we got to we gotta say something and what is it and, and just have no originality. So we talked last week about the issue of arguing to 100, I, I think we did, which is defining an inspiring goal, and then also defining what you believe is the evil thing, and then arguing that your product or policy or technology is the best way to get to the inspiring goal. Once, what I I hope any Republicans listening to this, just think about, okay, how can we reframe this and how, which is really properly seen as as a form of how can we do the right thing and then explain why it's right to people. So hopefully this idea of okay your ultimate define your ultimate goal that should be maximum human flourishing and then part of that is going to be climate livability and and the biggest thing for climate livability is climate mastery is human beings empowered to take the naturally dangerous climate and make it safe and and once you start thinking in those terms then you can really take the high ground and then you can also expose that the way people are thinking about finding superior alternatives to fossil fuels is completely contaminated by this green perspective because, as you mentioned, they're criminalizing the most promising alternative, which is nuclear. So really, and I've told um, Republican congressmen this, and I hope that that 
people listen and take advantage of this. If you only just reframed the discussion around decriminalizing nuclear as your number one energy and climate priority, or at least your number one quote unquote climate related priority or CO2 related priority, I should say, if you just focused on that, you could take the high ground and you could really expose the other side as anti-technology. All right, Stefan, you're up. What's the first story you want to talk about? So my first story is about the signs of pollution. And this will touch a bit on the uh, framework issue that you mentioned earlier as well. And uh, so the background of this is that in the year 2019, several large German cities will face uh, driving bans for diesel and uh, gasoline cars because of air pollution issues. And uh, uh, environmental nonprofit has successfully sued some of the local governments to uh, enforce uh, some air pollution standards that they are in violation of. And uh, this will mean that older diesel and gasoline cars will not be able to drive in cities like Berlin and Hamburg and Cologne. And uh, so the issue with this is that now in the public discussion, uh, for the first time, I think, uh, it is being discussed that the science behind these safety thresholds for uh, air pollutants like uh, nitrous oxides and particulate matter are actually not um, really based on sound science. Um, so, in, uh, so, for example, they will give a threshold of something like 40 micrograms per cubic meter of nitrous oxides um, uh, near like a German autobahn or a, or, or a city street. And uh, so that is then supposed to be a threshold of safety where if you go above it, you are, are harming uh, public health. And uh, so increasingly experts are, are coming out to say, uh, oh, that's not actually true. So we've established this uh, threshold of safety by some uh, policy regulation, but it's not really clear that anyone ever gets harmed by these, uh, these uh, concentrations of air pollutants. And uh, so there's one one expert in particular that I want to quote here, and he's a, a medical professor uh, in Germany named Dieter Köhler, and he's he has been a, f a former president of the uh, German Respiratory Society. So this is not a fringe view of you know someone with no credentials. And uh, he puts it like this in, uh, regarding nitrous oxides. If inhalation of 40 micrograms per cubic meter of air was actually harmful, smokers would die within a few months. So in terms of framework, what he does is he puts things into perspective. So other activities like, you know, burning a candle or uh, using, using natural gas for cooking or uh, in this case, smoking, exposes us to much higher concentrations of air pollutants and uh, that, that doesn't actually kill anyone. So it's highly questionable that the established thresholds for safety um, would harm anyone from, from the traffic emissions. And the, one of the reasons is that these thresholds are not actually um, established by any kind of laboratory testing, you know, um, exposing humans to some uh, pollutants until uh, some of them die, which would be unethical. Uh, but they are sort of 
established by correlational studies. And what that means is that uh, epidemiologists find some kind of statistical correlation or, or some uh, connection between some areas having higher pollutants and having a certain health impact outcome, like an you know, increased cancer rate or um, increased asthma rates and so on. And then they infer from that on a mass scale that, oh, a certain amount of additional nitrous oxide or particulate matter or whatever uh, the air pollutant in question is, then would harm people. So like a microgram, more of that uh, in the air as a, as a concentration would actually harm a lot of people if they, if like millions of people would get exposed to that, then they infer, infer some, some damage on a large scale. Just to give another concrete example, so the German environmental ministry uh, just last year estimated that, that 6,000 people would actually die annually from these nitrous oxides um, uh, concentrations from air emissions. But we know that... So I, I remember, just to jump in, I remember you pointed out to me years ago the different cases where by using these kinds of correlations, there's just an incredible potential for misrepresentation. Somebody could say, oh, well, Kentucky has a lot of coal burning and a lot of asthma. But then you look at, oh, wait, Vermont has the most asthma of anyone, and where's their coal burning? Or I remember when I was testifying in, um, I think it was an EPA hearing last year in San Francisco, and I pointed out that Nancy Pelosi had these claims about, oh, asthma is on the rise, Therefore, we need to crack down on emissions, and yet emissions had decreased drastically while asthma was rising. So if cracking down on emissions uh, correlated with them increasing, why would cracking down on them more lead to less asthma? Wouldn't it, quote-unquote, logically, if you're just using that kind of correlation, wouldn't it lead to more asthma? There's, there's another um, there, there's another thing that has uh, that that's relevant to this in terms of just how one's assumptions about nature and this idea of the the fragile nurturer one one aspect of that viewpoint is this view that perfectly that nature is perfectly clean and and also perfectly clean is perfectly healthy and there's an increasing recognition that this is total bs in the realm of, say, exposure to dirt and the idea that it's good for the immune system to be exposed to a certain amount of dirt and a certain amount of threats because it develops a certain level of resilience that otherwise wouldn't be developed if you lived in a clean room all the time. And if you lived in a clean room all the time, there would be huge issues to your health. And there are extensions of this to air. And one one thing that's just a historical fact is that we evolved in an era of fire. So why is it that our bodies are supposedly perfectly adapted to zero intake of any kind of emissions. And one guy I found impressive, and Stefan, I think you've also found impressive on this, is a guy named Robert Phelan, whom I hope I meet soon. He teaches, or he's at least historically at the University of California at Irvine, so he's very nearby. But if you search his name, Robert Phelan, P-H-A-L-E-N, he had a talk on emissions. Maybe we should Maybe we should link to it. But it was about 40 minutes and I, he just, he had the feel of, he really, he really passed different framework tests that I have. I was really 
initially impressed by him. I can't totally vouch for him because I haven't read or seen that much, but he seemed impressive. Yeah, that's true. He's he's actually a toxicologist, so he, he has something to say about the actual impact of things like that. Yeah, he also has a background. He he. There's another interesting guy whom I have met a little bit and should talk to more, a guy named James Enstrom out of UCLA. And one interesting thing about these guys, besides the fact that they're controversially controversial and outspoken in this field, is that they both come from physics backgrounds. So they 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 start as physicists and then they enter these fields that are very dominated by epidemiologists. Uh, I think Enstrom is an epidemiologist, but he comes from a physics background. And some of their criticisms of the way epidemiology is used or abused seems informed by that. I, I generally have a a bias, quote unquote, for people in physics who go into other fields, although that's that that, that is not any kind of uh, of certainty. Okay, Don, what is your second story? Yeah, so I call this Wall Street Goes Green. So, I mean, it, like historically, anti-fossil uh, fuel activists are always trying to persuade voters and lawmakers to pass anti-fossil fuel policies. But in, le- in recent years, one of the tactics that they've taken is trying to harm fossil fuel companies without having to bother winning over the public. And one way this has been happening is through shareholder activism. So if you're an anti-fossil fuel activist, you can buy shares in Chevron or Exxon or Shell. And then one of the things you can do is have these shareholder proposals trying to force them to do destructive things to their companies, like stop new fossil fuel projects or endorse anti-fossil fuel policies. And now, like these are not you know millions and millions of shareholders, but they've been successful at winning over the big mainstream shareholders like BlackRock and Vanguard by tying themselves to this what's called ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing Criteria. And so it's kind of like socially responsible investing, but like socially responsible investing used to say like, hey, don't invest in this thing because it's immoral. And a lot of people invest because they want to make the most returns possible. And indeed, for things like a um, you know retirement or pension fund, they sometimes have legal restrictions that would prevent them from doing anything that's not in the financial interests of their members. But what ESG says is, no, wait, If you, it turns out that actually companies that are socially responsible are more profitable in the long run and companies that are not socially responsible as measured by these environmental, social, and governance criteria, they're actually long-term threats to people. And so being socially responsible is really just being profitable. And so what you've gotten is you get these major investors like BlackRock and Vanguard supporting shareholder resolutions that are can be really harmful to fossil fuel companies. And the the latest development here is that the credit credit agents ratings agency Fitch is now saying that look our bond ratings we're going to show how they're tied to ESG and you know they found that twenty three percent of their ratings are influenced by ESG criteria and three percent just one ESG criteria has led to a change in the bond rating which simply means. If I'm a fossil fuel company and I get a bad environmental rating by Fitch, it's going to be a lot harder for me to raise money and engage in new projects. And okay, well, you know, that would be one thing. But if you look at the actual ESG standards, they're incredibly biased. And I'll just give one example. So um, 
one of the shareholder resolutions that activists have pushed for are companies reporting on their their climate risk. And what are their biggest climate risks that they have to concede in these reports? Well, it's that basically they're going to face radical restrictions on fossil fuels and or they'll be outcompeted by solar, wind, and batteries. And like the, if, if you actually were a fossil fuel company and said, hey, we're not actually going to be that profitable because we face these risks, your share price is going to collapse. And so uh, the 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 when when you actually look at these standards they're not written to really give an objective evaluation of the long-term health of companies like they're literally written by environmentalists and other kind of like egalitarian activists and now that you have even companies like fitch who are basically forcing companies to meet these standards it's really bad because it means investors are going to make bad decisions including the people who run our pension and retirement funds and it means that it's going to be harmful to companies who are producing energy that we all need. So you want to comment just for a minute about what we've been doing in this space? Yeah. So most of our work has focused on helping companies deal with these reporting requirements. And our basic view is that instead of giving a biased assessment of how, like how much are you harming the environment versus how much you used to a year or two ago, it's saying that what companies should report on is is the full context of their human impacts. And so like you came up with this great term, human impact reporting, where you look at the positives, including the, the benefits of affordable, abundant energy to human beings, as well as taking a look at the negatives, including potential risks that are involved in climate. And that, that by looking at the full context, that's what's going to give investors the best ability to assess your long-term prospects and because i think what these companies are actually doing is overall beneficial and will be vital for a long time it is good for the companies and in a really honest way and so i think like that's you know um we've you know worked with companies to to try to implement full context reporting as it's called but then i mean i think there's a hard question of what companies are going to do given the reality that they're forced to adhere to these really biased standards in the short term. Yeah, at least what we've advocated is that people should take the high ground in terms of the framework of it. And just as I mentioned in at the beginning of today's show, that we need a, a framework that includes seeking the full context for evaluating claims of others or evaluating issues for ourselves. So when a company is reporting on anything, which is one of the key principles has to be seek the full context and report the full context. And one of the, the things that a company today can be virtually sure of is that when the green movement asks it to do something, or even when a conventional, not exactly green entity, like let's say Larry Fink and BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street, when these things are being asked in the mainstream knowledge system, they're going to be asked for in a way that is seeking the negative context and also that has these fundamental assumptions about nature as fragile and that has a lot of the minimum human impact goal built in. And thus, if it, to the extent those things are, are, are baked in to a request, those are bad for the company and they are bad for humanity. 
But what we fa- what we found is that it is it's possible for the company to reframe the thing and to say, look, hey, we're we're ultimately talking about our impact on human flourishing, and we're really talking, and that can be positive and negative. It's not just negative, and it's not even just negative environmentally. There can be a lot of positive impacts there, and we're going to be as even-handed and precise as we can. And then if you do that, it gets a lot of credibility and helps reframe the discussion. Okay, Stefan, what is your final story for us today? So the final story is that according to an estimate by Rhodium Group, um, the U.S. Uh, CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions in 2018 have actually increased over 2017 after some years of decline uh, by over 3%. And uh, I think this shows uh, just how difficult it is, uh, even in a in a situation like the United States where a lot of uh, coal power generation capacity recently has been uh, replaced with natural gas, which emits less CO2 than than coal when burned, Um, how difficult it is for an entire economy to, quote-unquote, decarbonize, meaning that uh, declining CO2 emissions overall. And the main increases actually came from transportation industry and buildings, and that just shows that even if wind and solar were uh, up for the task in power generation, which they are apparently not, because natural gas took up all the almost all of the uh, generation from coal, um, all these other sectors, especially uh, important things like transportation and uh, heating and uh, industry energy use, are not as easy to replace. Well, and also, in the way I, I look at this is. Right now, given the state of technology, it's a good sign when a country's CO2 emissions go up, and it's a bad sign when they go down. And in the last couple of years, many people in the oil and gas industry have, and I'd say many Republicans too, and maybe some Democrats, have heralded the fact that the U.S. has decreased CO2 emissions more than other countries. But there, there's a bunch, there are a bunch of problems in that. One is that there would there was only so much coal that could be replaced by gas. Just so that that kind of thing, plus the other sectors involved, meant that as if we were going to have economic growth, that our, our CO two emissions were bound to increase. But also, that's just not the right focus. The right focus shouldn't be oh how low can we get our CO two emissions. It sh- it should be how high can we get our standard of living. And even with the natural gas quote unquote replacing coal, there are many many instances of that where that was not an economic or good thing to do. That was pr- that that involved a lot of political pressures that were really not the overall best thing for citizens who lived in a certain area. And then that increased the cost of their energy, which increases the cost of everything else in their lives, which makes economies worse. And then that decreases everything, including things like access to healthcare, you know, affordability of food. Just ener- energy is so fundamental that anything you do to increase the price of energy just has all of these negative systematic impacts throughout life. So e- even this 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 view that, oh, it's good that natural gas replaced coal, that's that's not at all categorically true. It's good if it actually outcompetes it, but it's not good if it's forced on people in a way that's designed to uh, accomplish green objectives. And in particular, because 
with natural gas, it's this unbelievable fuel and it has all these amazing attributes. It's, it's flexible in different ways. It's, it's basically the best thing in the world for what's called peak power generation. So it's, it's very, it's very flexible. You can build plants cheap. It's got a, a lot of different attributes, but there are also, it's, it's, it's hard to store in the same way that you can store coal. So there are issues with long-term reliability or what people call uh, resiliency, uh, particularly there are issues because we're not building nearly enough pipelines. So that's really the way to handle a lot of the resiliency stuff is to build pipelines. But plus price stability is more of an issue for natural gas than for coal, uh, particularly over the long term and particularly because there's a really exciting export market for natural gas. So what the, the, the key thing is to just view every technology as having different pros and cons to it and to want a society where really the best technology for the job now and in the future can be employed. Often when we have these policies that are anti-freedom and they are, they're rationalized by, oh, well, yeah, it's, it, this is a good policy because it lowered our CO2 emissions. And besides that, natural gas is quote unquote cheaper than coal, that kind of sloppy thinking that can really leave us in a lurch. And we, we've already started to see where not building pipelines plus compromised coal capacity has led to threats in the Northeast in terms of the winter. This is the kind of, this is the stuff out of Atlas Shrugged that you do not want to happen, but that happens when bad ideas overtake freedom in a society. So one, one to go back to an earlier discussion, one fundamental assumption of mine is that freedom is a fundamental requirement of human flourishing because freedom allows individuals to act on their best ideas, to make them reality, and to freely discover whether those ideas are good or not. And what I want is for the different producers of energy to be able to come up with the best ideas and to test them in reality and for consumers to be able to de to determine now and in the future what are the best things. I do not want these different authorities repressing or suppressing different forms of energy and then giving these sloppy little justifications that may really hurt us in the long run. All right, before we wrap up, any final comments by you two? We got about three more minutes in the power hour. Well, I want to go back to, uh, to the beginning point you made that I think ran through all these stories about a framework. One of the things whenever any of these issues and many other issues come up that I'll often be asked or that I'll hear people ask you, Alex, is something like, well, how do I answer this argument or how do I how do I reply when a person says X or throws this study at me? And there's this kind of more fundamental issue of you need to have high standards for persuading yourself. And then if you have high standards, that is a really solid framework for what you will be convinced by, then it becomes a, a much easier issue to convince others. Because in general, what you're just doing is you're sharing your framework and you are filling in the facts that... Um, that will allow them to reach a conclusion using the right framework. And then if you have a wrong framework, what that really means is that you don't have high standards for what you allow yourself to be convinced by. And I think like that is the most fundamental thing to be concerned with. And so for any of these issues and any other issues we cover, it's always first us doing our best to have the best framework we can, and then trying to be persuasive using that. 
And that's a good segue to people. If you want more information, we have a website where you can sign up for the mailing list and in particular, some content on persuasion in particular, which is at energyinfluencer.com. That'll give you a bunch of content. If you want a little less content, go to industrialprogress.com and then you'll just get the standard newsletter and what we call the energy clarity series. But energyinfluencer.com has a lot. If you want to support the show, support the mission, support energy and human flourishing, one of the best things you can do is recommend me or one of our other speakers for a high-level event. So you can do that by emailing don at industrialprogress.net. Don handles all of our speaking. Or you can go to the speaking website at industrialprogress.com slash speaking. That is it for today. Would love any kind of feedback, questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail. You can email us. I'm at alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is at don at industrialprogress.net. Stefan is at stefan at industrialprogress.net. And that is S-T-E-F-F-E-N. Thanks, guys, for coming on the show today. Hopefully, you're having a good night in Germany, Stefan. Uh, thank you. See you next time. All right. Talk to you soon, Don, and talk to you soon, everyone else. Uh, until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.